As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. When it comes to India, there's one quote that has always stuck with me. If you understand India, then someone's done a pretty bad job explaining it to you. And I cannot think of another nation around today that embodies that so very clearly. With India having so many divisions, languages, conflicting ideologies, and geographical challenges, it's frankly shocking the country has held together and done as well as it has. Just in my lifetime, I've seen India go from having a 1% share of the global economy to now having almost 5%. And that continues to grow each and every year. In fact, one of the only other big powers following that same path is just over the mountains in China. But emerging great powers competing is nothing new. We've seen it with Britain and Germany, even with the US and the Soviet Union. The difference is here that these great powers share a long land border, one where troops regularly engage in fighting. There's not just problems along the edges of the country either. India has a lot of internal challenges to overcome first. Unlike China, India doesn't have the same centralization of governance. The people speak 22 languages, and the laws, rules, and taxes differ wildly between states. To get a product from the Taj Mahal in Agra to the port in Kolkata would require a 1,200-kilometer journey through four different states. But India still continues to grow. Business Insider predicts India will be the second or third largest economy by 2050. That's just 30 years from now. But how likely is that? What and or who could stop India from reaching its projected growth? And to start with, the list of who's is actually pretty long, as India has not always had the best relations with its neighbours, having been at war with every single one of them at some point in history. Even just recently, fighting with the Tamils in the south, the Pakistanis in the west, the Bengals in the east, and the other emerging superpower, China, all along its northern borders. And we haven't even got into the Kashmir problem yet. India has enemies in every single direction. But which one of these poses the biggest threat? Which one of these will decide the Indian people's trajectory over the next few decades? Well, that's our question this week. Who is India's greatest enemy? And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Surrounded. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Well, India is a large country, 1.3 billion people, second largest population after China, and probably set to overtake China in population by uh, 20 years, 15, 20 years, and become the country with the largest population. On the other hand, India's GDP per capita is hardly one-fourth or one-fifth that of China. So uh, we are very long way behind China. But you could say potentially, in geopotential terms, India is the only country in Asia which could be some kind of counterweight to China in the 21st century. Swami Natan Ayer is a renowned Indian economist and senior research fellow at the Cato Institute. He's also consulting editor for the Economic Times of India, as well as an author of a number of books on the geopolitics of the Indian subcontinent. And he joins us today. Some people say India is 20 years behind and will do in due course catch up. But India is a giant, uh, a, a sleeping giant for a very long time. It has potential. It is working well below potential. It has a number of internal political problems which it has not easily resolved. It does not live in a very friendly neighborhood. It has two very major problems with Pakistan on one side and China on the north and has fought wars with these countries and the military border with both these countries is unsettled. Uh, the world is also retreating out of the traditional international cooperation into individual uh, individual country focuses, which again means that India is in not a friendly environment. It is not surrounded by friendly countries, and it is in a situation where it needs more allies, but frankly, doesn't have any really deep relationships, deep friendships. So it is not a good position to be in geopolitically. And what India really needs to do is to become economically sufficiently strong that it can manage on its own uh, without having to depend on a whole lot of allies because it does have serious problems with its neighbors and it's going to have to tackle most of them on its own. China and India began their economic booms at roughly the same time. But you mentioned there that China's GDP per capita is much higher than that of India's. So why is India's rate of growth so far behind China's rate of growth? More correct, would you, you should be asking how is China so far ahead? China had a rate of growth averaging almost 12-13% in the 2000s. So what China has done is the fastest in all history. India has been doing almost 7% growth for 20 years. That would qualify for a miracle economy. And the very fact that you call it miracle means that frankly you're doing pretty well. But you're not doing nearly well as China, which has broken all records. Uh, I would say that in some sense, China is following the same example done earlier by Singapore, uh, South Korea, Taiwan. You have an authoritarian political model married with uh, liberalizing more open market uh, economics linked to massive exports. So that at a very small scale, first of all, worked in these other countries. And the very fact that, you know, Ultimately, Singapore is a kind of China. Uh, Hong Kong is a kind of China. Taiwan is a kind of China. And Deng Xiaoping was able to see that, you know, it, you don't have to give up political power 
to get market power by going towards the market and by going towards exports. And in effect, therefore, that's what he has become. It's a very, very powerful model. It succeeded in those small countries. It's succeeding in China. Uh, so it is, so it is, I would say there is no other model in the world that has produced consistent growth of 10, 12% for so many years, as in the case of China. So China has hit on a sweet spot. How long this will continue remains to be seen. It is now no longer going to get developing country treatment as it did in the past. It is now seen as a hostile uh, political power in various places, especially by President Trump. And therefore, the kind of access it had to foreign markets, uh, which it was used to, it may no longer get. So China undoubtedly is going to slow down. That slow down will perhaps give India a chance to catch up and go ahead. So we don't have enough time here today to go through the full history of India without making this a four hour piece. But to vastly oversimplify, between the years of 1858 and 1947, India was ruled as a British colony under the name the British Raj. The Raj contained the modern day states of India, Pakistan, Myanmar, Bangladesh, and to a lesser extent Sri Lanka and the Maldives, with different people and religious groups living amongst each other throughout the Raj. Fast forwarding to just after World War II, with India making a push for independence and removing British rule. The British though volunteered to oversee the transition, and the decision was made that the Muslim families would be pushed into what is now modern-day Pakistan and Bangladesh, and the Hindu families would stay and live in India, with millions of families moving from one area to the other. Many of these lines and divisions on the maps were drawn up by the British in less than three weeks, and it led to heavy fighting, with millions of people dying in what is now known as the Partition of India. To this day, many famous Hindu sites sit in Pakistani territory, and many famous Muslim sites sit in Indian territory. And tensions particularly between India and Pakistan remain incredibly high to this day. But once again, I recommend you go off and read about the partition of India, as it's a huge subject in its own right, and I have skimmed over so, so much here. But setting aside Pakistan for the moment, I want to talk about the other Muslim-majority nation, Bangladesh. What is the relationship like these days between New Delhi and the Bangladeshi or Bengali government in Dhaka? Uh, it is an extremely good relationship by historical standards because Sheikh Hasina, the head of Bangladesh, is probably the most pro-India politician in Bangladesh. To that extent, the relations between the two countries have improved very substantially. Uh, the amount of the commercial exchanges, the political exchanges, Bangladesh allowing transit uh, between the two ends of India, between Bengal and the Northeast through there. India allowing transit from, from Bangladesh going up to Bhutan, Nepal and other places. Uh, various uh, economic deals that have been struck. So from that point of view, politically, the situation is much better than it used to be. But there is this dark cloud hanging, which is the issue of Bangladeshi illegal immigrants into India. The BJP has gone on the rampage trying to say that there are millions of such people and they have to be thrown out. Bangladesh denies that these are Bangladeshis and certainly it will not take them back. And I think India has informally said, okay, you know, okay, we can't push them back. 
and yet the ruling party in india the bjp has this fundamental pro hindu anti muslim bias in which it calls these migrants from bangladesh termites tunneling their way into india and has promised to find various technical ways passing new laws to throw them out so you have this potential situation of tension that uh, just as india has got the best possible uh, leader in bangladesh ruling right now sheikh hasina there is this dark cloud on the horizon now whether india can actually go ahead with this there are some there are number of political and legal hurdles but there is a proposal that we we'll have something called an all india national register of citizens in which people will have to produce papers to prove that they are indian and india is a country with so many illiterate and poor people they don't have documents and if you have don't have documents under the thing you could then be disenfranchised and told okay you are not indians along with that there is a separate legislation saying there can be fast track treatment for all migrants into india provided you are a hindu or a christian or a zoroastrian or a sikh but not if you are a muslim but if you are a muslim who cannot doesn't have these documents in theory you could be put into a concentration camp and held for detention with attempts to throw you out so this particular thing the bjp has been going on this internally as part of its internal program and this certainly would be very disruptive for relations with bangladesh right now the bengali government is fairly friendly with india but at the same time more and more investment that is desperately needed in bangladesh is coming from beijing with the increased reliance on china do you think bangladesh may flip sides to appease its creditors or are they going to remain politically close to new delhi for a long time still no i think every country in asia is perfectly happy to say that we need finance for infrastructure and we are willing to take it earlier the source of mainly world bank uh, asian development bank and now if there are these chinese sources we'll take them and let me add that there is this asian infrastructure bank of which china and india are both members which at some time has been talked about as a possible rival to the world bank but over and above that the chinese banks are the giant banks some of the biggest in the world today so will bangladesh be happy to tap those sources the answer is yes let me add india is also getting some loans from some of these banks where china is a majority partner so everybody will go for china for infrastructure will that develop into a political relationship of the utmost importance a little more difficult to establish but let's face it if china is going to be the biggest economy of the 21st century every country in the area is interested in having decent relations with that particular country so even if bangladesh wants to have good friendly relations with india it will equally want to have good friendly relations with china so at this point of time uh, all and all of india's neighbors certainly in nepal certainly bangladesh certainly sri lanka they will all be looking uh, and above all pakistan of course all looking to china for help with infrastructure help with finance which i think is fine Uh, just as america was the dominant source of finance and technology in the 20th century i think china will begin to take on that role more and more in the 21st century 
and that's okay. The only question is, does this mean that it is at the expense of India? I hope not, but that might turn out to be the case. Well, let's move down to Sri Lanka now. The Sri Lankan government already has quite deep ties with Beijing, having taken huge loans from them a few years ago. And they're even in talks at the moment to allow China to build a large-scale naval base on the Sri Lankan coast in exchange for some debt relief. Do you think this signals a further shift towards Beijing for the Sri Lankan government, or is it just a consequence of being in so much debt to China? As I said, every country needs money. Every, and as I said, the source of financing earlier, World Bank and uh, uh, USA in the 20th century, and now it'll be the uh, Asian Infrastructure Bank and China in the 21st century. I mean, there's a shift. Where are the savings? Where is the money available? And China is there. Uh, in the case of Sri Lanka, they put up at Hamban Tota this huge port and airport in the constituency of the former president. And that was a pathetic failure. And being a pathetic failure, ultimately, uh, China, in a sense, said, okay, we'll write off all these loans in return for operating this for 99 years. Now, some diplomats got very, very alarmed. They said China will do this in country after country, give large loans, they won't be able to repay, and then China will get what, in effect, might become a future military base. As of now, the Sri Lankans have said there is no question of it becoming a military base. Uh, but is it something that gives China leverage? Yes, it is true. So I think just as in the 20th century, uh, when America helped out various countries with foreign aid or built projects out there, that gave them some lo local leverage. Something similar would happen uh, in the case of China in the 21st century. Before China's invasion of Tibet in 1950, Tibet used to be very close with India and quite often would align itself with the goals of New Delhi. But now that Tibet's been a part of China for almost 70 years, do you think that sentiment remains? If Tibet were to somehow gain independence today, would they realign themselves with India? Look, Tibet is now Han majority. The local Tibetans are now a minority in terms of the population. So the idea of Tibet somehow becoming independent, I mean, this is 20th century thinking. I mean, there was a time when you could say that the Han Chinese were intruders. They invaded, took over Tibet in 1950. But by now, they have moved so many Han Chinese there that the Han Chinese are a majority. So when you talk about Tibet becoming independent, I mean, this might have made some sense when there was a local Tibetan population majority. But if the Tibetans, as they were historically called, are now a minority in Tibet, then I really don't see that there's any question of an independent Tibet. Uh, India has certainly not attempted to encourage the Tibetan refugees in India to think in these terms. We certainly are, India is certainly not going to try and say, let us try and support an independent Tibet as a move against China. Absolutely no. Uh, so I would say there's no, going to be no independent Tibetan movement of any significance. If it happens, India will not support that kind of movement. India will not want to ruin its relations with China, uh, merely because there are some people who want an independent Tibet movement. So jumping over to the Indian side of the Himalayas now, I want to talk about Nepal, which is currently being governed by the very pro-China Nepalese Communist Party. Nepal in control of many of the passes through the Himalayas between China and India, as well as being right next to the Siliguri Corridor, or Chicken's Neck of India, 
a roughly 20-kilometer wide corridor separating northern Bangladesh from southern Nepal, owned by India. It's been a consistent worry for the New Delhi government, as it's an only 20-kilometer gap, and if it were closed, 40 million Indians living in the northeast of the country would be cut off from the rest of India. And 20 kilometers is not that far to cut off. Do you think having a Beijing-aligned Nepal is a threat to the overall Indian security? Uh, Nepal has always been has chafed at the fact that its only relation, it's like a little landlocked country with the Himalayas as a border on the north and only India in the south uh, as its uh, neighbor. And it has these differences with India, various kinds. And it has always chafed that, you know, it has nowhere else to go. It's like under the thumb of India. That's how they think. And would they be willing, would they be happy about diversifying their relationships? by having roads and railways through the Himalayas to link them with China, they would welcome it, I'm sure. I'm sure, in fact, that even Bhutan, ultimately, if it had the chance, would want that. I mean, nobody wants to have only one single neighbor like India, be uh, large dominated. They would like to diversify uh, their sources of supply, their trade, uh, various things that they can do. So without doubt, Nepal will do its level best to improve relations. I think you're going to get roads and maybe even a railway through the Himalayas, which will one day connect uh, Tibet and uh, Nepal. And Nepal will try to use this in some of its old uh, disputes with India because, you know, it would love to have leverage using other people uh, against India in some of those disputes. During the Cold War, India was very close with the Soviet Union, doing large amounts of trade and buying almost all their arms from Moscow. But what is that relationship like today? How are relations between Moscow and New Delhi? I would say it's about a one quarter of what it was during the Cold War. In other words, I mean, it has by no means disappeared. But at that time, it was in some sense a dominant relationship. The overwhelming majority of our arms came from them. And we could pay for those arms in rupees. We could pay for other imports from Russia in rupees. So, you know, it was not uh, this foreign, the foreign exchange problem that we faced in those days could be overcome in these particular ways with Russian help. And Russia was always a great help to India in the Security Council in debates on issues like Kashmir. So that during the Cold War, I mean, India was non-aligned, but signi very significantly tilted towards uh, the Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union collapsed, the Indo-Russian relationship diminished very substantially. It is now getting rebuilt. Uh, among other things, Russia is on its feet economically and continues to be an important producer of arms. India finds it difficult. India has a policy of diversifying its arms supplies and getting them cheap. So right now, there's a dispute between India and the USA on the fact that India wants to buy these S-400 anti-missile systems from Russia, just as Turkey has done. And the Americans are dead against this thing. This will affect you know, our relationship with India. They're also saying, look, if you're going to have a close relationship, we can't have Russian equipment sitting in the same kind of area, which might be able to interfere or snoop into the American systems that the Americans are selling to India. Despite this, India, and therefore America has threatened India, or for that matter, Turkey, with sanctions. There are American laws that enable such sanctions to be placed on countries that will buy uh, 
मिलाकर एस फोर हंड्रेड सिस्टम फ्रॉम रशिया एंड ये टर्की हैज गॉन अहेड एंड इंडिया हैज गॉन अहेड एंड साइंड एंड इज गोइंग टू गेट दो सिस्टम सो द फैक्ट दैट इंडिया इज विलिंग टू टेक दीज रिस्क टू कीप दिस रशियन लिंक लाइव शोज दैट दैट लिंक विद इन रशिया रिमेन्स एन इम्पॉर्टेंट पार्ट ऑफ इंडियन स्ट्रैटेजी रशिया रिमेन्स ऑल्सो सप्लायर अदर काइंड the cost is much less russia remains supporter india can rely on in the united nations security council on issues like kashmir so there is a much the trade the trade has gone down tremendously from the old days when trade was done in rupees so the ussr is not a significant trading partner of india anymore it used to be a much bigger trading partner in the old days but it continues to be of a uh, country with which india is on friendly terms and it is important for india in terms of military equipment and support in the un security council and what about washington what is the relationship like at the moment between new delhi and washington mr modi would like to pretend that relations are much better and they have a great personal relationship i don't think that carries very much credibility if you actually see what's happening on the ground uh I do not think Indo-US relationships are doing well at all. Uh, Mr. Trump sees things in very transactional ways. So if he can sell India lots of arms, he thinks, "Ah, relationships are improving." Or because of shale oil and gas production, if he can sell more oil and uh, gas to India, ah, he says, "You know, trade is improving." Uh, but from the Indian side, many things are negative. Uh, India objects, for instance, to the fact that it is being forced to cut off relations with Tehran. Uh, India is fighting the USA on the on the threat of buying arms, especially the S-400 missiles from Russia. On the economic front, India used to benefit from something called the general generalized scheme of preferences, uh, whereby India got duty-free treatment for a wide variety of goods, accounting for about six billion dollars worth. and the americans said sorry india is too protectionist we don't like this and the gsp privilege that india had has been taken away by trump there have been negotiations for more than 2 years to try and reinstate it those negotiations have failed so you know things have not done well there finally i would say india is very unhappy with what's happening in afghanistan uh, india would want to see a larger american presence there india would like to see a much tougher line against the taliban and the usa doesn't seem to be doing that it seems to be just uh, going away from that area so i would say in various ways uh, are things our relationships better under trump than under obama outside not by not at all i would say they're significantly worse but neither country actually wants to say so there is an improvement to the extent that india is now buying many more arms from america that there are various it has, india has been designated as a major defense partner so india has been helped by the usa to get into international agreements like the missile technology control regime and so on so there have been some positives in that relationships but on the trade side on the economic side serious negatives and india is unhappy about the way the united states is behaving in iran and afghanistan Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There is no doubt that China has been making aggressive pushes using financial diplomacy into South Asia, with most of India's neighbors now owing large amounts of money to its regional rivals in Beijing. But what is Beijing's overall strategy for the region? And what does the next decade have in store for these two regional superpowers, whose border is the largest mountain chain in the world, the Himalayas? Well, to talk more about the threat between India and China, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. Buying Enemies uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I would, I would argue that it is probably China. That China, China uh, uh, presents India with a with a challenge that is much more significant than what it has been accustomed to, uh, along four key lines. So uh, there is a boundary dispute which has heated up in the last few months uh, between the two countries, and you know, it's quite significant, even though it had been peaceful until uh, June of this year uh, for almost forty years. Uh, effectively, China claims an entire state of India uh, with populated, you know, this is populated territory. Uh, so it's a quite a significant uh, boundary dispute. But it's be- it goes beyond that. It's also, uh, there are ser- serious and growing concerns about uh, Chinese influence in India's near neighborhood, uh, including in, you know, uh, uh, three of the, the, the three countries that received the largest uh, amount of Chinese arms are all India's neighbors, Pakistan, um, Bangladesh and Myanmar. Dhruva Jaishankar is the director of the independent security and strategy think tank ORF and a senior fellow at the Lowy Institute, as well as a former fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington. It's rare to find anyone around who knows more on the Sino-Indian relations and its current place in Asia than Dhruva. And we're very excited to have him on the program. He joins us today. Uh, But you're also seeing a growing Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean as well. Um, there are uh, significant problems on trade and economics. There's a massive trade deficit that India has, ha- has with China um, uh, of uh, roughly, uh, for a couple of years ago, to $60 billion, uh, so about the same size as uh, India's defense budget. Uh, and you see China opposing India at international institutions when most other countries, including the US, UK, uh, France and Russia are often very supportive of India. Uh, so uh, China presents a, a sort of a, a major challenge in a way that Pakistan, while, it, while, while Pakistan is so politically more sensitive in some ways than India, uh, doesn't present India with that same, uh, uh, that, that same scale of challenge. Recently, we saw fighting break out along the Chinese-Indian border, high up in the mountains, with casualties on both sides. Looking at the footage, though, you notice both sides are fighting using bricks, sticks, and usually bare fists, rather than guns. And this is because Modi and Xi have had an agreement in place where punching, yelling, and spitting is okay, 
but guns are not allowed on these border patrols. This is usually done to make sure things don't escalate too far between these two major players. Do you think the current situation on the border is a managed conflict or just the bare minimum to try and keep the lid on the whole situation? So a, a series of protocols had been established since the uh, since 1993, um, a series of agreements up to 2013, that were going to that, that were basically meant to not resolve the boundary dispute between the two countries, but basically make sure that um, uh, you know the that the competition was contained. And so there were protocols established for what uh, what should happen if the two you know, patrols from Indian uh, Indian and Chinese military patrols overlapped, which they they did on a frequent basis. Um, and there were protocols about uh, sort of weapons and how far away uh, uh, from the boundary they should be used and, and, and so forth. So, so, so those kinds of uh, habits had developed over time. But I think what we've seen this year particularly is those habits break down quite significantly, uh, which, is, which is unfortunate. And I think in some ways this will require going back to the drawing board. Uh, I, mean, uh, for, I mean, I think the, 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 there's an immediate issue of resolving the current standoff, which continues. Um, but then there is a longer term issue of after that, how do you rebuild that level of trust that has been sort of painstakingly built up over um, more than 25 years? Um, so uh, all of this is to say that, you know, while, while there are still protocols in place in theory to, uh, to defuse tensions, uh, that there are serious questions about how effective uh, they will continue to be uh, going forward. So neither side can actually agree on where the Indian-Chinese border sits. So what does the line of control actually look like over there? The, the, the line of actual control, the LAC as it's called, is, is actually has three sectors. Um, uh, a western sector that in, in Ladakh, uh, in the Indian uh, Union Territory of Ladakh. The middle sector, which is Himachal Pradesh and Uttar Pradesh, or what used to be Uttar Pradesh, now Uttarakhand. And then the eastern sector, which is Arunachal Pradesh, which actually is the longest boundary. Uh, the current standoff is, taking, is, is really focused on the western sector in Ladakh. Uh, and we have seen a sort of forward deployment of several divisions of the Chinese PLA uh, to uh, this area. Uh, they uh, remain there, uh, although in very narrow uh, sort of gorges. So there were sort of four, uh, roughly four points of, of uh, uh, sort of forward presence uh, by them, uh, including in one area where uh, they seem to have moved into what was previously considered as something of a no man's land. Um, and so the the question now is, uh, you know, while the standoff continues and there doesn't seem to have been major uh, changes in the last few weeks, um, the uh, what what as long as it continues, we've seen the Indian government try and put in place uh, certain um, uh, punitive measures, mostly on the economic side. So this included. Uh, the banning of a large number of Chinese apps on for for mobile uh, phones, uh, including uh, TikTok and uh, a browser that that is the second largest uh, mobile browser used in India. Um, you've seen uh, a tightening, uh, effect, an effective ban on Chinese companies participating in uh, government procurement contracts in India, say for infrastructure and uh, everything from oil rigs, um, things like that. So. Um, uh, and I suspect we'll see further steps in the coming weeks. So the idea is, uh, I think what, what India is trying to show is we, are, we will continue doing these measures that will have both short-term and long-term economic consequences for China as long as this continues to uh, play out, uh, as long as it continues to be this forward presence by, by Chinese forces. So there hasn't been really an acceptance of a new line of actual control. Uh, I mean, we're talking in this case about a few, you know, 
few kilometers uh, forward uh, here and there, so it's not a massive amount of territory, but it is part of a, uh, you know, a, uh, what's considered a salami slicing tactic on the part of China. So war between India and China would be an incredibly difficult campaign, with the Himalayas separating the two countries. So any invasion force going either direction will be funneled down a small number of slow, narrow mountain corridors where columns of tanks would be easy pickings for aircraft. So with that in mind, do you think China would theoretically actually have the capacity to pull off a large-scale invasion of the Indian North? No, so, you know, uh, one is um, the kind of mobilization that that would require uh, is today much more easily anticipated. There's much, you know, compared to 1962, which is when, when India and China fought this uh, boundary war, which um, which India was on the losing side of, and where, where China made uh, deep ingresses, both uh, in the Western sector, but definitely in the Eastern sector. Um, compared to then, you know, the, the Indian military is much better prepared. So at that time, there were only two divisions on the boundary. Now it is, it, it's a significantly larger number of Indian uh, forces on, on, on the boundary. Um, there is, um, you, you have, you know, the, the, the ability to anticipate uh, this movement, you know, uh, basically in the form of satellite imagery and, and, and other forms of intelligence is, is significantly better. So, you know, I, something like that, I think, is um, uh, not really on the cards. And I think you also, you know, that kind of conflict happened before uh, India, certainly, and China as well had nuclear weapons. So, you know, there is a sort of nuclear dimension to, to all of this as well, which, which uh, you know, hopefully does not come into play, but, but, but is something to consider. So if you take all of that, you know, I think this idea of large-scale conflict uh, is not on the cards. Um, but, uh, you know, what we are seeing uh, are these sort of very limited um, uh, movements, uh, and in some ways not too dissimilar from what we've seen China do in the South China Sea, which is sort of slowly, milita you know, slowly mil militarize what had been a disputed area. Um, the, you know, I think the, the difference here, one, is it's on land, two, it's, uh, you know, this, this involves populated territory at some point. So it is in some ways more significant. But, but uh, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that this will escalate to that level. So what about the other way around? Would India, let's say, have the capacity to retake parts of Tibet that were once aligned to New Delhi? Uh, you know, a forward ingress, at least at large scale, is, is very difficult. The terrain is, is really quite uh, difficult uh, to, you know, to involve going through a number of passes. Um, so I, I, I don't think that's on the cards. And India hasn't really invested significantly in an offensive capability. There is uh, the, the there, there are some uh, you know, mountain strike units being uh, developed, but uh, even that would have a very uh, limited uh, capability to uh, to make ingresses into Chinese territory. Right now, there is a large talk about beefing up the Quad Agreement, a military cooperation pact between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia, effectively a thinly veiled anti-China pact. How significant do you think the Quad will be going forward? Will it be the basis of an Asian NATO, or just a lot of nice ceremonies with a lot of flags lying around? So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it'll be an alliance, and I think I think the Asian-NATO comparisons are, are not quite uh, apt for, for for a few reasons. But one of them being that the U.S. appetite for alliances hasn't increased. In fact, it's decreasing, and we've seen that in the the some of the frictions between the U.S. and its NATO allies, and certainly also also with the U.S. and Japan and South Korea. Um, so, I, I don't I don't think it it will evolve into an Asian-NATO. Um, 
Um, I think that's quite clear. What, but you know, it has formed. It has. Uh, it was resurrected in 2017, uh, and it is basically a regular meeting of the four countries' foreign ministries. Uh, initially at a sort of working level, but it has now been sort of punted up to a ministerial. They've met at least once as a, a group of ministers. Um, and it serves two purposes right now. One is uh, a political signaling to China um, that there is a sort of uh, growing common agenda when it comes to regional security. Uh, the second is actual coordination. Um, and we've seen that, you know, the, the Quad in some ways has been a building block for some of the coronavirus coordination that is taking place. Is, uh, there are, in fact, two different formats, one led at the, by the, the vice minister or the, the deputy secretary of state in the U.S., uh, and his counterparts, and one by the Secretary of State and his counterparts of the Quad countries, plus a few others, including South, in one case South Korea, Vietnam, and, and New Zealand; in the other case, uh, Brazil and Israel. Um, so, so the Quad, in some ways, is is basically an informal coordination mechanism and is evolving in that direction. Separately from that, there is a trilateral naval exercise that is held regularly between India, the United States, and Japan, and there is some speculation that Australia, which was invited once in two thousand. Uh, seven uh, will be invited back into that, and that that would become, in some ways, the mainstay for improving the military interoperability between these four countries. Um, I think there's. I suspect that that's only a matter of time before that happens. It'll either be this year or more likely next year. Um, but um, all of this is to say that I think we're seeing, you know, in some ways, the more significant thing we're seeing is growing military contacts and interoperability between the four quad countries. Um, so India and Australia just uh, announced a logistics agreement that would allow the two militaries to supply each other more easily. And India and Japan are, are now about to finalize a similar agreement. India already has one with the United States. So we're, we also see secure communications agreements between the four countries. So uh, the, the steps towards a greater um, uh, alignment of these four countries are definitely taking place and have, have significantly accelerated over the last five years. Uh, will that mean a sort of treaty alliance type system? Um, I, I suspect it will fall short of that for the simple reason that the politics of the four countries does not uh, really allow allow for that to take place. In theory, though, if China was to form its own quad-like organization, uh, which nations do you think would jump in on the Chinese side of that? Well, you know, the two closest relationships in a way, uh, both complicated. I mean, Pakistan is by far China's closest military partner. Um, it's a country with which China shared uh, nuclear and missile technology in, from the late 1970s to the mid-1990s. Um, it's a country where China is increasingly investing as part, in, in, as part of its um, Belt and Road Initiative. So the, a major thrust of the Belt and Road Initiative is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So Pakistan will definitely be a candidate for that. Um, there was recently a meeting of the ministers from China, Pakistan, Afghanistan and Nepal. Uh, which uh, ra uh, you know uh, raised a lot of consternation in India, but I think that some of that has to do with the present Nep uh, leadership in Nepal rather than a, a sort of deeper, um, uh, a sort of deeper country-to-country -country relationship. Um, North Korea is all, all, uh, you know often cited as the other uh, Chinese ally, but that's a much more also a much more complicated relationship. And there are hints that Kim Jong-un actually wants to distance himself a little bit from uh, Beijing and have a strike out on a slightly more independent note. So it, it, the one thing I think when China looks around, it sees apart from Pakistan, it doesn't really have any uh, close allies. I think the other countries that come close, well, there is a much closer compact with Russia, between China and Russia, which causes India a lot of um, 
uh, discomfort given that Russia is the largest defense uh, supplier to India. Uh, and then in Southeast Asia, Cambodia and Laos are often cited as the closest relationships China has there, which it has used to undermine a consensus amongst the, the 10 ASEAN countries uh, when they've tried to take a common position against China. So, I mean, the, when you look around, you know, when China looks around, I think those are the relationships, those are closest relationships it has. Uh, however, there, there are many countries where China now exercises quite a lot of leverage and often in the form of economic leverage um, uh, and uh, that, that extends to large parts of Southeast Asia to, to Africa and, and, and even Eastern Europe. The other area of competition between New Delhi and Beijing is the Indian Ocean. China needs the area to remain as friendly as possible as the majority of its trade will travel through the Indian Ocean and then onward to China. But this is viewed by New Delhi as its own backyard and that New Delhi should have control of this region. So how would you compare the Indian Ocean strategies of both New Delhi and Beijing? Right. So, so I think it's, it's very different. In China's case, it really started after about 2008 when they sent initial an initial counter piracy mission uh, to uh, the Gulf of Aden off the off the coast of Somalia. Um, and since then, you've seen a, a effectively a permanent Chinese presence established. They, their first overseas military base officially was opened in Djibouti um, in 2017. Um, and since then, you know, that has actually focused more attention on Chinese, what are still uh, largely uh, commercial investments in several uh, port projects in the Indian Ocean. And these include Gwadar in Pakistan, Hambantota in Sri Lanka, uh, Chokfu in Myanmar, um, and several on the East African seaboard as well. Um, so far, none of those have really been militarized. Uh, the Chinese uh, uh, Navy uses Karachi in Pakistan and Seychelles and a few other places for some refueling. Um, but, um, but there is growing concern that uh, what is already a permanent pres Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean will become more consolidated. Um, now, India has, in some ways, natural advantages of geography. Um, it, in, it is a sort of resident power in the Indian Ocean. It has uh, assets in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, just off uh, west of the Straits of Malacca, uh, where there is a, a, a sizable uh, naval presence as well, Indian naval presence. Um, and it is also what we've seen now in sort of in, 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 uh, as a counter to the Chinese encroachment uh, has been a number of steps taken by the Indian Navy, some of which are quite significant. One, in, in 2017, actually, they completely changed their operational deployments. So um, there are seven zones in the Indian Ocean where the Indian Navy now has a permanent presence, uh, meaning they, they, there's always one ship or aircraft deployed there at any given time. Uh, there have also been a series of uh, bilateral agreements that India has signed um, with uh, several countries, including France, uh, which has uh, a, a number of islands in the southwest Indian Ocean, uh, with Singapore uh, and with others that makes use of the facilities of, of um, those countries, um, wherever the Indian Navy can, can, can now use. Um, and so you're seeing in some ways uh, a real push to first uh, find out in real time um, I'd say another big significant development has been the establishment of an information fusion center in, in Delhi and in, in India that uh, gathers information from across the Indian Ocean in real time uh, to uh, uh, there. So it's both you know, satellite imagery from, from uh, military aircraft, uh, from uh, radars. Um, and so a number of these steps have been taken basically to better track uh, Chinese military activity in the region. Uh, and also uh, to um, uh, to uh, deploy, uh, to sort of have a have a, have a, a greater ability for the Indian Navy to actually deploy quite quickly uh, around the region. 
As we've discussed on the program a few times before, the Strait of Malacca between Malaysia and Indonesia on the edge of the Indian Ocean is the most crucial choke point for China, with a huge majority of China's shipping going through a narrow 1.7 mile wide gap. With India now looking to work with other nations to help patrol the area, do you think this will give India additional leverage against Beijing? Right. So, so the, the Malacca Strait, you know, is uh, patrolled basically by three militaries, uh, Singapore, Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, and India has expressed interest in uh, working with those three countries to have coordinated patrols in, 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 in the region. Um, the, this has been complicated by the fact that the three countries themselves don't have a coordinated approach. And so that that has required India to actually try to work bilaterally with, with Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia, which is so slightly more complicated, um, and, and to some extent Thailand as well. Uh, but beyond the Malacca Straits, actually, there, you know, the, the, there are several other straits, the Sunda Strait, the Lombok Strait, uh, that, that are in Indonesia, uh, between the major islands there, between Sumatra and Java, between Java and Bali, where, which are sort of channels for, um, for, for both commercial and military vessels to, to cross. Um, and a lot of this depends on you know what orientation Indonesia takes, and we saw a market change in this um, in 2018 actually, where there was suddenly greater enthusiasm on the part of the Indonesian government to work with India and other other countries on security matters. Uh, some of it was motivated by the flare-up between uh, Indonesia and China and the South China Sea. Uh, there's a, a part called the Natuna Sea which uh, is not strictly a territorial dispute because China uh, doesn't claim Indonesian territory, but there is um, uh, a dispute over the exploitation of natural resources, particularly fishing vessels. And so this actually led to, uh, this became a big domestic issue in Indonesia. Uh, they even uh, led to some uh, sort of blowing up of some Chinese fishing vessels. Uh, so uh, in the aftermath of that, there's been a greater seriousness on the part of the Indonesian government to work with India and with other countries to uh, shore up their capabilities. And one area of some discussion is developing their coastal, Indi sort of Indonesia seeking Indian assistance to, um, uh, to build up their coastal radar systems. Um, to, to better track uh, maritime activity. Uh, so this, this remains a pretty in the a very nascent stage. Another thing we've seen is Indonesia has become more welcoming of Indian uh, ships. So there's a port in the northwestern tip of Sumatra called Sabang, uh, which is not very far from the Indian Andaman Islands. And so for the first time, we're seeing Indian Coast Guards now st uh, vessels stop there uh, uh, and turn around from that point. Uh, so th this is just shows some of the very new habits of cooperation that are forming between India and Indonesia, but uh, there's still a long way to go, and a lot more. Uh, a lot will depend really on uh, you know where Indonesia Indonesia's strategic orientation in the long run. The majority of India relies on a handful of very large and very crucial river systems. One of the main ones being the Brahmaputra River, which originates in Chinese Tibet. Do you think China has the ability to dam up these rivers and cause distress for the Indian population who lives downstream? Uh, but the Brahmaputra River has been a point of concern for some time. Um, China is is building dams on the river and has been for some time. Um, f uh, until recently, uh, it was quite clear that these were what are called run-of-the-river dams um, and were not diverting water, uh, I mean, something which is very hard to do uh, at, at, in, in that terrain in the high altitude of, of uh, in Tibet. Uh, but that doesn't rule out the possibility of something like that happening in the future. 
and that if that were to happen uh i mean that would be very significant uh that would have consequences for um for northeast india particularly the state of assam where the brahmaputra flows but uh it's not an issue frankly that i've been following the last couple of years but prior to that you know the uh, every um uh, third party or other investigation into Chinese damming activities in the Brahmaputra had suggested that this was these were um, uh, they were not developing an ability to divert those waters. So as you mentioned, China has a very close military alliance with Pakistan, the nation most people regard as India's ideological enemy, even helping Pakistan to acquire a nuclear weapons program, a program solely designed for a war with India. Do you think China has the diplomatic abilities to help push India and Pakistan towards war in the event that India would oppose an economic threat to China? So that way India and Pakistan destroy themselves while China remains relatively unscathed. Well, well, I mean, that, 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 that posits the you know, very unlikely theory that there'll actually be a nuclear exchange. Um, but, um, you, you know, I mean, what we are seeing happen, though, is I think there's a growing consciousness that the China-Pakistan relationship is, is, is much closer. And China will, in the event of greater India-Pakistan um, tensions, that China will be very much involved. And so you see public, quite publicly... Uh, leaders in the Indian military talking about the prospect of a two-front war and having to to at least contemplate and plan for that. So I, I, I don't really see that, you know, it's very much part in China's interest to use Pakistan to keep India pinned down. Uh, but uh, beyond a point, you know, I think that there'll be uh, uh, the, the, the linkage between Pakistan and China will now become, has now become much, much clearer in, in, in the minds of Indian military planners. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Since the very first day of modern India, New Delhi has been in conflict with Pakistan, its western neighbour. Having 10 standoffs or full-scale conflicts just in the short time that India has been a republic. It's no wonder that both Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, and New Delhi's foreign policies are so centred around defending against the other. The complicating factor now is that both sides have nuclear weapons, and both sides regularly fire upon one another. And now with China pulling the strings on Pakistan, New Delhi's two greatest enemies seem to be teaming up. So what does that mean for India? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3 a one-country foreign policy. Well, I think for, for ordinary Indians, uh, you know, uh, it's the issue of terrorism uh, that, we, that Indians and ordinary Indians have dealt with over the last several decades. You know, terrorism not simply restricted to the borders with Pakistan, but Pakistan has been able to push uh, that, uh, that terrorism problem. In fact, at one point, many cities in India 
were facing this problem uh, you know you used to we used to have uh, very regular um, uh, terrorist attacks in indian cities major major uh, urban centers so there is you know there is a first hand very intuitive reaction to the pakistan question that pakistan is uh, you know has um, has taken bilateral relationship to uh, from a strategic level uh, to one where even the people to people ties have been disrupted the fact that uh, that there was so much potential if you think about it how similar the two countries were when they became independent uh, that potential has been disrupted because of the propensity of pakistani elites to use terrorism as an instrument of state policy and that means that ordinary indians have have borne the brunt of this uh, of this terror question and therefore their feelings about pakistan are much more uh, vivid they are you know they they are much more uh, in your face Harsh Pant is a professor of international relations at King's College, specializing in the Indian subcontinent. He's also the head of the strategic studies program at ORF, as well as an honorary director at the Delhi School of Transitional Affairs. And he joins us today. But as you say in when it comes to Pakistan the the feeling is that Pakistan's uh, you know uh, shenanigans Pakistan's uh, you know uh, use of terrorism has impacted many many indians very very directly uh, and i think that's what leads to this uh, uh, you know this you know uh, assessment of pakistan being uh, of a big nuisance but i think anyone uh, who, uh, who you know as you as you point out those in the policy making community have increasingly now recognized that india's pakistan problem is now a subset of india's china problem that uh, you know that the, the two don't exist uh, in isolation if you imagine a situation where china did not have the ba- where pakistan did not have the backing of um, uh, china uh, then uh, i think pakistan would not be in a position to do uh, even the the kind of uh, the things that it is doing or it, it it does even today so because because of the chinese support uh, that uh, that element uh, comes into place so a huge chunk of the india pakistan tensions comes from the dispute over jammu and kashmir and once again i highly recommend you go off and look up the history a little more but for the sake of time we'll just go over the very basics of the situation when india was partitioned by the british in 1947 the continuous muslim areas or the majority of them became pakistan and the hindu or secular areas became the nation of india and in the very north of the country along the borders with china and afghanistan sat kashmir Kashmir's population were majority Muslim, but ruled over by a Hindu monarch. So when asked to pick a side, the monarch chose to stay neutral. In fear of losing the territory, Pakistani citizens rose up to overthrow him and secure the province for Pakistan. The monarch, seeing this happen, panicked and turned to India for assistance. India then sent in their armed forces to defend the monarch, sparking the first Indo-Pakistan war. The mountain fighting was absolutely brutal. with thousands of casualties on both sides but the UN managed to broker a ceasefire between India and Pakistan neither side gave up their claim to Kashmir but both sides withdrew behind the UN brokered line of control and it became a semi de facto border the aim was that this border would be in place until a fair and independent referendum could be held to let the citizens decide that referendum though never took place Now both sides have armies stationed on the border regularly exchanging fire. This is one of the most tense zones in the entire world and neither side wants to back down. Pakistan especially can't because Kashmir is its only link with its major partners in China. And without it, 
China's use for Pakistan as a corridor into the Indian Ocean would be greatly diminished. And India knows this as well. So both sides' entire doctrines towards each other hinge on Kashmir. But what does the average person in India think of the conflict? Is it worth risking nuclear warfare with Pakistan over Kashmir? Well, I think one, of course, there, there is a history, a historical element there, which uh, which you would have discussed earlier. But the issue there is that look, uh, here 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 is a province which, uh, um, you know, which was uh, the Muslim majority province, and um, for 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 different reasons, uh, India, you know, it is it has it decided to uh, become part of India, uh, and uh, Pakistan since 1947 has been trying to make this case. Uh, that uh, that um, Muslims in the subcontinent uh, or Hindus and Muslims in the subcontinent cannot live together. So in some ways, it's a question of identity for both India and Pakistan. For India, the identity of a secular um, nation where uh, you know, where Hindus and Muslims can live together. For for Pakistan, it is equally important to assert the identity of uh, of the of Islam by saying that look, uh, there is uh, you know Hindus and Muslims cannot live together, and therefore. Um, you know, uh, Muslims need a separate a separate homeland, and that narrative uh, continues uh, to shape the larger ideological battle between the two countries. India uh, emerged after 1947 as a secular country uh, with equal rights for all religions. Pakistan, of course, by very definition, emerged as a, as a nation uh, where uh, which was uh, you know which was a homeland for South Asian Muslims. Now, uh, clearly for Pakistan, that identity has not worked because we know that uh, in 1972 you have the creation of Bangladesh. But uh, I think the idea that you know that Kashmir represents that. Uh, it was a Muslim majority state that India, from in the, in the Pakistani narrative, India uh, controls is something that Pakistan uh, feels is very is imperative for Pakistan to get uh, you know uh, extract from from India, and that is something that Indians of you know Indian Indian policymakers of different uh, um, backgrounds of different ideological persuasions have never have uh, have always been very very reluctant to concede and that is at the nub of this of this confrontation now where the confrontation became uh, almost uh, you know militaristic i think there you had the situation that right from the very beginning pakistan had been using military uh, to claim uh, that part and 1947 conflict for example uh, right after independence right at the time of independence the conflict starts uh, but those we have had several conflicts uh, along um, kashmir um, but i think you know the idea that pakistani military elite uh, embodies is that they are the guarantors of subcontinental muslims that they are the they are they guarantee the identity of pakistani nationhood and that identity relies on uh, on this anti-India argument uh, and somehow Kashmir is at the very core of that identity question for Pakistani military and intelligence elites. But I think for India, the question has been that as as, a, as well, you know, as, as uh, the most preeminent democracies in the world, what can it do to ensure that the democratic ethos also establishes in Kashmir? And therefore, once India started the process of uh, of elections in Kashmir, uh, and then the larger Jammu and Kashmir. After all, Kashmir is not simply Kashmir. When we talk of Kashmir, we talk of a larger space, which was at one point the whole state of uh, Jammu and Kashmir, which has now been bifurcated uh, last last August into uh, Jammu, into into two union territories, which is the centrally governed um, 
geographies. Uh, one is Ladakh and one is Jammu and Kashmir. So you now have, uh, you know, uh, Jammu and Kashmir as a space was never only about Kashmir Valley. There was there was Jammu and there was Ladakh. So the, that, you know, that distinction has often been uh, clouded by uh, some of the things that, uh, you know, Pakistan has been trying to articulate. Now, there is an, there is an older issue here that, you know, uh, that there are certain areas of Kashmir which are also under the control of Pakistan. A part of it has been leased to China. So it is, it is in totality, if you look at it, it's a very complex geography where you now increasingly have India, Pakistan and China all, all having competing claims. And that is the reason why for strategic purposes also, for India, it becomes very, very critical. Of, of course, uh, for, uh, you know, there is there is a larger ideological reason, there is a larger reason of, uh, you know, of, the, of territorial uh, sovereignty here. But I think uh, also strategic terms, in strategic terms, that region has become so important and so vital. And I think that contestation uh, remains at the heart of India-Pakistan problem, uh, as, you were, as you were mentioning. And Pakistan's inability to also move away from this idea that that you know this anti-India sentiment that has to be uh, nurtured and that had to that has to be um, built around which the the larger um, you know Pakistani identity had to be constructed had also done great damage to this. Now whether or not uh, I mean, my sense is that unless there is a domestic transformation in Pakistan which allows Pakistan to get out of this. Uh, uh, you know this ideological perspective, this this perspective which which basically uh, defines Pakistan in anti-India terms. I don't think there is going to be a resolution to this problem, uh, and I don't see uh, that you know that Pakistani military elites at least uh, are, are convinced of this argument because for them it is also about their own institutional prerogatives in Pakistan. So long as they are claiming to defend Pakistan against India, their sanctity, their you know, their status as the preeminent institution in Pakistan gets preserved. So I think there are a number of structural institutional reasons why the Kashmir question, for example, continues uh, to be um, the problem and why I don't think in the, in the coming years as well, there is likely to be any possibility of its resolution, uh, a, a fundamental resolution. But I think what has happened uh, is that India seems to have taken an approach and that uh, you know it can live with with the present chaos in in you know as as Pakistan is perpetrating and therefore India is now moving towards reconfiguring its peripheries which which it considers to be frayed for example the one that I mentioned last last August it, it deciding to take greater control of uh, um, of uh, Jammu and Kashmir by bifurcating it into two union territories. Both sides have impressive militaries, but when it comes to the sharp, mountainous terrain of Kashmir, fighting becomes incredibly difficult. So does either side actually have enough military strength to push in and take out the other by force, obviously without the use of nuclear weapons factoring into it? I don't think so. I think status quo is the most likely outcome. That is why it has preserved so long. And I think what is what is also happening is that uh, for many in India, it's also a question of what would India gain uh, by, uh, you know, um, if, for example, there is a, you know, you, you I mean, you, you if you, there, are, there are many in India, for example, who would want uh, those territories that are 
illegally, for example, from India's perspective, occupied by Pakistan to be to be made part of India. Now, the question is, what costs is India willing to bear to get them? And are those costs worth it? Now, for Pakistan, also, this, you know, same conclusions apply, given what their economy is today. I don't think a war with India would make any sense. But I think, therefore, and, and that has been that has been a situation for quite some time now. Pakistan has been in, in doldrums, economic doldrums for a long time. It is only external uh, help that is sustaining Pakistan. First, it was the American help during the war with Afghanistan and now the Chinese. But the question is, uh, you know, and, and therefore the question for Pakistan is, uh, you know, do they really want to do uh, that? So clearly they don't. Otherwise, they would have done that. The other, the, the conventional uh, war with India does not suit them. The conventional war with India suits no one. So I think clearly uh, they know their limitations and I think the larger cost-benefit analysis has been done. So the, so the result is that you find uh, you know, other ways of, of, of bleeding India, other ways of, of uh, creating trouble for India. And that is something uh, that, that I think in some ways has been well documented. The issue I think has become more complicated for India now that there is enough evidence to suggest that Pakistan and China together are working in collusion more and more. So if you have two adversaries sitting on two sides of your borders working in tandem and increasingly coordinating their responses, then I think the challenge becomes a bit harder for a country like India. And therefore, uh, you know, India has been for a long time trying to get this, uh, get a sense from China as to where it stands. Now, China clearly has made it stand very clear through its recent actions that uh, it does not see, uh, you know, that pre where previously it used to take a more nuanced, a more... A neutral stance on the issue of Kashmir, it has really tilted now towards Pakistan and uh, that, that is something that will continue. So whether it was um, China um, uh, going in for the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative through the disputed territory in Kashmir, or whether China now, um, uh, you know, challenging India on its borders through through degree of violence, which is unprecedented, have sent the signals to India that the collusion between China and Pakistan is going to be the new normal uh, that India will have to face and Indian policy planners, defense planners are taking that into account. So I don't think a conventional war as far as India-Pakistan dynamic is concerned is something that the two countries uh, would take, in, uh, you know, the cost of, of, of that dynamic is something that the two countries have taken into account and will continue to take into account. But the question is whether that uh, that assessment that the, the costs are high lead them towards uh, a resolution of this problem, which I don't think because, as I said, uh, for Pakistani military, uh, that would be the death knell of, uh, you know, once you say that, let's, you know, let's give up Kashmir, let's, uh, let's, uh, you know, uh, come to, a, to an agreement on Kashmir, then what is left? Uh, how would Pakistani army sustain its centrality in Pakistani um, uh, political order? At the moment, it continues to sustain that centrality by saying, look, there is, a, there, is a, there is an enemy in the form of India. We are the guarantors of your security. We protect you from India. And that is the reason why we have to, you know, we have, you have to keep funding us. And that's the narrative that the Pakistani army has been selling for, for quite some time. Pakistan and China have become quite essential to each other. China in particular is investing heavily in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the aim of which is to be able to pick up and drop off resources on the southern coast of Pakistan, particularly at the Chinese-owned port of Gwadar, and then transport them via road and rail back to China. See, this would get around the problem of the Malacca Strait and the South China Sea being blockaded by the US, whilst also giving China a potent source of tension to ratchet up or release against India when required. Economically, their relationship is so intertwined these days, 
but how close is the relationship militarily? I mean, if India and Pakistan went to war with each other, would China jump in on the side of Pakistan? Well, all the indications are that a relationship which was, uh, you know, which at one point or, or a decade back, perhaps we could have um, categorized as relatively skin deep, uh, or relatively superficial, uh, has now become much more much more strategic. Uh, you know, that, that relationship is evolving very, very rapidly. And at one point, many in India, for example, thought that uh, as China, you know, as China really becomes a global power, as India rises in global power hierarchy, uh, there will be uh, enough space for India and China to interact with each other on the Pakistan question itself. That Pakistan, China might be willing to, um, you know, engage with India on terms that might be more beneficial. After all, uh, India is a big market. India is a big trading partner. Uh, something that Pakistan does not offer. But what what instead we have seen is that Pakistan's uh, role as a strategic player in uh, in China's uh, growing um, presence in South Asia and Indian Ocean region is something that is becoming much more much and uh, is becoming more and more you know uh, uh, robust more and more robust and I think that is a reality uh, that uh, Indian policy planners are facing uh, and I think everyone else is also facing and also I think what has happened is. India-U.S. relations have improved and U.S.-Pakistan relations have deteriorated. So uh, Pakistan's reliance on China has also increased. Uh, today, uh, you know, and, and that is, it is not simply U.S. It is, if you also look at very recently, um, just last week, um, uh, when, uh, you know, the Saudi, Saudis, for example, have, have now changed their approach towards, are changing their approach to Pakistan, are getting closer to India. Uh, and are not willing to give Pakistan the kind of uh, resources that at one point Saudis used to give. That means, uh, you know, once uh, the Saudis refused to bail Pakistan out, pa uh, last week Pakistan went to China and, uh, you know, and asked for, this, uh, for similar resources which they got. Now, clearly China also won some returns and therefore China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is a big project. It's the largest, it's, it's the largest um, project within the Belt and Road Initiative, very, very ambitious. Uh, and uh, and for that, uh, as I was discussing earlier, China has been willing to uh, face flak from India because clearly that, you know, for the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which passes through uh, what India considers disputed territory in Kashmir, um, China is willing to give Pakistan benefit of the doubt, which means that, that China is willing to signal that on the, on the issue of Kashmir, it is tilting towards Pakistan, something that it had not done in the, in the last few decades. So that shift is happening where multiple realities, the geopolitical realities in South Asia are changing. And as the US-India relationship advances, as US-China relationship deteriorates, as US-Pakistan relationship deteriorates, I think it's very, no, it's very natural that the China and Pakistan will continue to look at each other uh, you know, through, through lenses that perhaps they had not seen, looked at before. And that means that the strategic nature of this relationship cannot be underestimated. Now, that does not mean that if there is a war tomorrow, uh, China will come to India's aid. But it means that if there is a war tomorrow with, between India and Pakistan, China has many other levers that, we, that it can use vis-a-vis uh, -vis India. Pakistan is also looking down the barrel of a huge strategic crisis as well, with the monsoons that feed the critical Indus River moving further and further east every year. Eventually, these will likely end up in Indian territory. So what will Pakistan do when a huge chunk of their water supplies ends up in India? 
Well, I, you know, Michael, I think you know this this water question is also very interesting because you also have uh, the question that India has raised vis-a-vis -vis China. So this is uh, this is also a question of what happens to the larger water management issue in in that geography, which is certainly uh, is, is going to be shaped by the way uh, you know uh, our, our uh, environment, our um, climate change issues are dealt with. But I don't see. Uh, the possibility, at least in the short term, of, of any armed aggression from either side. I think what is also interesting is that despite some in India suggesting that India might have to rethink its approach on the water Indus Water Treaty, for example, uh, I think the 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 you know water management treaties, water engagement uh, between um, river water engagement management between India and Pakistan uh, have uh, have held their ground so so far at least. And uh, I don't see that getting transformed into a large-scale military conflict, at least in the short term. Partly because you know, this is an interlinked question. This is not simply about uh, India and Pakistan. You know, India and Pakistan. This is also, I think, it involves a much larger geography where you have to look at it all the way from China to India, you know, including Bangladesh, there is Nepal, there is Pakistan. So almost all these countries in the region are interlinked in, in more ways than one as far as the water management issue in the region is concerned. And so any any diet taking, uh, you know, using the military for that purpose might not work to the, to the, to the, for, for the larger region and might create more complications because other countries will also have a stake in what needs to be done there. Uh, whether it will hold permanently in the future, uh, if the crisis uh, really uh, deteriorate, you know, materializes in, in ways that perhaps we have not envisioned today, remains to be seen. Do you think India is at risk of China using countries like Pakistan, the Seychelles and Nepal to surround them? Or is that just paranoia by the Indian part? I think, uh, you know, I don't think India uh, is... Um, suddenly tomorrow going to be surrounded by a number of these outposts. Certainly, China has plans, China has engagements with many of these countries. But I think the real issue here is the very extensive engagement of China in India's periphery. And the, an engagement that has been growing over the last few years, you know, at a, and that has suddenly become exponential in its growth. China is the largest trading partner of several countries in South Asia today, if, if several of India's neighbors today. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, including India. Uh, China is, uh, is also uh, looking at, you know, extending the, you know, its, its naval presence in Indian Ocean region, uh, which at one point uh, was seen as something that uh, China would not, you know, would, uh, would be beyond the scope of Chinese capabilities. So, in a sense, over a period of time, as Chinese capabilities have expanded, Chinese interests have expanded, and those in, they are being manifested in their presence in South Asia and Indian Ocean region, in countries from uh, you know uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Mauritius, Maldives, Nepal. All of these countries, uh, you know, at you know at one point in time, were close Indian. Friends, they still are close Indian friends. The only difference is that these countries today have another friend, which is China, and these countries, uh, you know, feel that they, uh, their their foreign policy, their pol is best served by using uh, both uh, powers to their advantage, which you know I think they are doing very very effectively. 
but what the real issue here is that china is today the most uh, one of the most important players in south asia india has to take that into account when it frames its foreign policy and it is not simply a question of india and china it is also a question of the agency of small states of, of of smaller states in the region they also have agency so they feel that they can look at these two major economic powers political powers military powers and they can benefit from them by playing one off against the other at times if need be and that is the reality that we are living in uh, you know this this is the reality of our times and this is something that india will have to take into account as it goes forward in framing a response uh, to china as well as in framing its bilateral relations with these countries because clearly in you know the the uh, the older template uh, that india may have had in, in when it comes to dealing with its neighbors may not work today where the neighbors also have options of a of a powerful country like china uh, there are many problems with chinese engagement in the region including for example the very famous word that is often used that that trap and uh, diplomacy uh, but india's uh, inability often to deliver on the ground to convert its promises into operational operational outcomes is something that has always been a problem and where china has delivered india has not been able to deliver and there uh, the the real competition between the two countries like india and china uh, comes to the benefit of these smaller states which are shaping their own foreign policies based on their foreign, uh, you know based on their relationships between these two countries and often times this results in playing one off against the other but i think the larger issue that india will have to grapple with is that china is a presence in south asia in the larger indian ocean region and india will have to find an adequate response to manage that that challenge now all of these countries are different than pakistan as we have been discussing pakistan in you know for the last few minutes pakistan stands out because of its uh, very identity based requirement of anti india foreign policy but other countries are much more nimble they are much more uh, you know they define their uh, their foreign policy in terms uh, which where uh, india is not the enemy around which they have to define their foreign policies so clearly for them engagement with india and china is both beneficial and at times uh, you know they they play one off against the other and that's the reality of south asia and indian ocean region today and it will be for some time in the future As we said at the beginning of this story, it is far more complicated than we could ever do justice for within 90 minutes. And I'm sure we will be revisiting Kashmir in its own piece sometime soon. India's relationships are fluid and changing, and it's not always to India's advantage. To start with, whilst Bangladesh is friendly today, governments change, and as Bangladesh continues to be smashed by rising sea levels and worsening monsoons, the need for foreign investment will continue to rise. And as we know, China will likely be there to help. The debt trap will get bigger and bigger. And much like we're seeing in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh may not have any choice but to give China what it wants, even if it's sympathetic to the government in New Delhi. Nepal is also slipping away from India, looking to China to escape the fact that due to its geography, it has been at the mercy of Indian foreign policy now for decades. And now, with its current allegiances, China controls many of the crucial passes through the mountains, leaving Beijing in control of what comes in and out of those passes. The other worrying factor here for New Delhi 
is the fact that Bhutan is in an incredibly similar position and might start having those conversations as well. The big obvious one though is Pakistan, and this is the one China crucially needs to keep on side, as the two countries' strategic futures are now intertwined. But what should India do about all this? Because there aren't that many good options on the table. In the current situation, China can build infrastructure and reserves in India's national enemy's heartland, supply Pakistan with weapons, and even assist Islamabad to export terrorism into India, and further cause headaches for the government in New Delhi. The status quo doesn't favour the rest of the Western world either, as the entire strategy of Chinese containment, of choking China into the South China Sea, has just been worked around by using Pakistani ports in the west of the Indian Ocean. What would have been a huge pressure point to wield against Beijing has just been severely dulled. But we also can't forget it's also hellish for the people living in these disputed Kashmir zones as well. In the Indian zone, India regularly cracks down, shutting the internet off to the region for days and months at a time. Unemployment is high, and there is very little autonomy for the region these days, especially with this current Hindu nationalist government sitting at the helm. But living as a Kashmiri pandit is horrible as well. Kashmiri pandits living on the Pakistan-controlled side are regularly killed and slaughtered in large numbers by the Pakistanis. And due to the conflict and visa troubles, many of these peoples cannot return home, simply because of a line on the map. There is no security for these people, and to be honest, no end in sight either. The status quo has so many problems with it, but what can you do? Any war India launches against China will quickly become a two-front war with Pakistan. And even then, India's trade deficit is far too high. You also have the added complication that the country India gets most of its weaponry from is Russia. And Russia is much closer with China at the moment. And in the event of a war, they may not sell everything that India needs to carry it out, favouring the Chinese side. So you turn towards the United States and look at reforming the Quad. But that won't save the situation either, as Japan and Australia are still incredibly reliant on Chinese trade. And the US doesn't seem to be in any mood for its current alliances, let alone new ones. Even with just a limited war localised to Kashmir, the fighting would be far too tough with the mountaintops of Kashmir being an almost impossible place to conduct military manoeuvres, without losing thousands of your own men to do so. And the moment you do that, China will flood the area with cheap weapons, as it would love nothing more than to cripple the one nation that may pose a challenge in its grand ambitions throughout Asia. Culturally though, this conflict may be baked into the cake. Even last year when we saw Pakistan and India exchange jet bombing runs in Kashmir, both sides worked very hard to avoid casualties, miss their targets, and exchange pilots. Because both New Delhi and Islamabad know how quickly the rhetoric and momentum of war can take over, and force India into a conflict it could not likely win. As we said at the start of this piece, if you think you understand India, or you think you have the solution to the problem, you may need to think again. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. This episode was one of the most requested pieces we get, and we are thrilled to finally get the chance to work on it. I'm sure it will not be the last time we visit the conflict between India and Pakistan. Last week was also a very special week for myself and the show, as we just clicked over our 500,000th stream after just nine months of doing the program. I never even dreamed that we would get anywhere near this. 
Even now, when I look at it, I'm still just so thankful for all of the love, support, and feedback we've had from you guys towards the show. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I'm more than aware, though, that this would not have been possible to achieve without the amazing support from our Patreons. Their donations to the show, whether it be a monthly donation or even just a one-off, mean the absolute world to us. It really does help with the costs of running a show like this. Every dollar from our Patreons goes straight back into the program, so we can chase bigger and better stories for you guys. And to say thank you to our Patreons, we do live Q&A sessions between the Patreons and myself, and we've just booked in dates for the next one. So if you are a Patreon, you should be getting an email from me tomorrow night. If you would like to jump onto these Q&As and ask me any burning questions you might have, or even just support the show, we would be incredibly grateful for your donation. Right now, we're saving up to be able to afford to turn these episodes into short videos and help us bring you maps and animations and bring the show to a wider audience. But if you want to support the show in other ways, you can follow us on social media platforms on the handle at the Red Line Pod, or find myself on Twitter at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. A big thank you goes out to all of our guests as well. You can find Swami on Twitter at SwamiAyer1 or visit his website, swaminomics.org. The website contains a fantastic collection of books and research papers done by Swami, and it was fantastic to have him on the program. Druva was one of the most switched-on people I have ever had the pleasure of working with. I am very sure Druva will be making a huge impact on the region over the next few decades, and we will hopefully have him back on the program sometime soon. So if you want to find more of his stuff, you can find him on Twitter at d underscore jashenka. Harsh and his work at King's College are incredibly highly regarded, and we can see why. He was amazingly insightful when it came to understanding the internal dynamics of the region, and I highly recommend you check out his books Indian Foreign Policy and China Ascendant, as both of them are some of the best around on this subject. Another thanks goes out to one of our Patreons, Gokosani, who helped me out with some of the research for this show. He does some amazing writing over with Nine Dash Line, a website all about the geopolitics of South Asia. I recommend you go check out his stuff. And if you want to find him on Twitter, you can find him at Gokul underscore Sani. As always, I want to thank Nick Munch and Joe Hawthorne who helped out with this episode. And of course, the amazing Mark Spence who does the additional voiceover that isn't mine on the program. I really couldn't ask for a better team and you guys are the reason we can do this show. We'll be back in another fortnight with another international episode. Once again, to everyone who tuned in, sent through an email, DM'd me on Twitter, I read every single one of them, and I have loved catching up with so many of you over the last few weeks for a chat or a beer online. I am always consistently amazed with the people I meet through the show. So if you ever have a question or just want to chat or just want to ask anything of the show, please feel free to DM me. I do read them all. But that's all for this week. So until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>